today on Divine Truth Podcast. The gospel, the truth, is under relentless assault. And John writes to this lady because he wants her in her home to protect the truth. And God calls us in our homes to protect the truth. But folks, listen, I'll go a step further than that. God calls us in this house to protect the truth. This is the Divine Truth Podcast, a ministry of Emmanuel Baptist Church in beautiful Central Virginia. This podcast is for the purpose of teaching God's people through the verse-by-verse exposition live from the pulpit of Emmanuel Baptist Church. We pray that the Word of God richly blesses you as you hear it proclaimed. And uh, we're going to read uh, a few verses in, in that epistle, and then we're going to uh, study through this book, Second John. And if you're probably wondering why I didn't do First John first, it's just because we're, we're doing Second John first. And uh, there's, a, there, there, there's a particular truth that is, that is nestled in Second John that I, wanted to, that I wanted you to study with me uh, on Wednesday night, so we'll spend the next few weeks going through Second uh, John. So let's read our text. Second uh, John chapter, Second uh, John verse one, and uh, the Bible says, "The elder unto the elect lady and her children, whom I love in the truth, and not I only, but also all they that have known the truth, for the truth's sake, which dwelleth in us and shall be with us forever. Grace be with you, mercy." And peace from God the Father and from the Lord Jesus Christ, the Son of the Father in truth and love. I rejoice greatly that I found of thy children walking in truth as we have received a commandment from the Father. Let's bow our heads in prayer. Father, we ask you, Lord, that you would teach us your truth. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. In 1665 through 1666, the bubonic plague swept through London. In less than 20 months, at least 20% of the population died. That's about 200,000 people. Medical authorities who were really decades off of the first microscopic sightings of bacteria, they have theorized that the disease may be due to the sickness of the livestock, emanations from the earth, or contaminated air. And for those that advocated the bad air theory, in their minds, clearing the contamination was the answer. And so in order to do that, fires were lit day and night. Pepper, frankincense, and other strong-scented substances were tossed into the fire. People were even encouraged to smoke tobacco. 
But the doctors were dead wrong. The plague was not an airborne disease, but a bacterial one. It was not in the air. But if you know anything about history, you know that the bubonic plague was carried by rats. The medical mishap cost many lives, especially the poor people that lived in rat-infested slums. Death records stated that by September 1665, at the height of the outbreak, 7,000 people died per week. And it was not until the next September, with the Great Fire of London and the destruction of much of the city housing, that the plague was finally eradicated. Imagine for a moment, if you were the doctor during that dark time and medical time of our world history, and you discovered that the culprit, the culprit bacteria, was in, literally, rat fleas. You did test, and you retest, and you retest, and sure enough, the rats had to go. Of course, nobody's got a real problem with that anyway, do you? Buponic plague or not, rats got to go. You explain to the authorities about your solution. Everyone is excited about the good news that there's finally going to be a cure to this dreaded, deadly disease. Now just imagine with me for a moment another doctor comes along who's a little bit more sophisticated than you are. He has more impressive credentials. He speaks with more of the traditional medical language. He ridicules your theory, equating the existence of the bacteria to the Irish fairies. People change their mind. And they denounce your theory. And they follow the second doctor. But sadly, they follow the other doctor to their demise. When the apostle first preached the gospel, by sharing the cause of our disease, which was Adam, and the cure of the disease was Jesus Christ coming in the flesh, It was good news, and everybody was excited about it and accepted it gladly. Soon, however, more eloquent, self-appointed authorities came to town, questioning the cause and scoffing the cure. They claimed that, well, sin isn't as big as a problem as John's message is trying to portray and they also claimed that Jesus Christ really didn't come into the flesh, come in the flesh. The heretics that appeared in John's day believed in what is called uh, what, what is calls, uh, called docetism, and that is the heretical outlook. That is the heretical view that maintained that Jesus Christ did not come and take on a physical body. These men came with with their great pomp and circumstance and perhaps 
a whole lot of worldly credentials and they came and they updated John's, what they said was John's primitive message. And the issue is, is Christ not coming in the flesh, folks listen, is a major issue. Because the fact is that a non-incarnate Christ is not a true Christ. Meaning, a non-incarnate Messiah is not a Messiah. And anything short of the true Christ will not deliver on the gospel promises either in this life or in the next. Christ is not only God, right? It says very clearly in John chapter 1 verse 1 where it says, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And you notice in that text there that you've got a verb, you've got three verbs, and there is the word was. Now a lot of times we just kind of overlook, we read past what seems to be small, insignificant verbs and other words like that. But if you get down into the text and you really study what the text says, the words was, all three of those, are what we call in the Greek an imperfect tense. And literally what John is saying is this, and this is one of the greatest verses in all the scripture that indicates for us and proves for us the deity of Christ, because here what, here's what John is saying by, by the usage of the imperfect tense. Imperfect tense is a completed action in the past having lasting results, or a completed action in the past results up into the present. In the beginning, the word always was. And the Word was always with God, and the Word was always God. And so right in John 1.1, 1, 1, right out of the gate, John indicates for us that Christ is not only God, but he also indicates for us in that same chapter that Jesus Christ came in the flesh. It says in verse 14, And the Word, the Lagos, the Word was made what? flesh and dwelt among us listen church to deny the fullness of his godhead is antichrist but also to deny the fullness of his godhead bodily is also antichrist many cults out there have no problems with colossians 2:19 and they says that he is the fullness of the Godhead. But what they have a problem with is he is the fullness of the Godhead. Paul goes on to say he is the fullness of the Godhead bodily. Why is it that Christ, why is it Christ being in the flesh so vital? Because Christ became a man, folks, for the propitiation of our sins. In 1 John chapter 2, verse 2, and he is the propitiation for our sins. And listen, church, without the truly human, truly divine Savior, we have no assurance of God's full salvation. And this is the battle that John is fighting in this book, in this small little letter. Second John, as you can tell, is a very short letter. It's 245 words in the Greek. One papyra. That's it. And perhaps the seriousness of what was going on is the reason for the shortness of the letter because this needed to be distributed quickly. 
Because why? The rats have to go. The rats have to go. And this letter is all about false doctrine and hospitality. And in the first four verses of the epistle, John begins by discussing the importance of truth. We emphasize a lot here at Emmanuel the importance of truth. And the fact that we need to stand firm on the truth. And that is the message of 2 John. Standing firm on the truth. Even standing so firm on the truth, we'll get to this later in the letter, but standing so firm on the truth that you do not offer hospitality to those people that are propagating a false gospel. Because back in the first century, what these what preachers would do is that they would go from place to place, town to town, preaching the gospel, and they would depend upon the hospitality of the people in those homes to give them shelter and to give them food. But not only did those people that were preaching the truth do that, but those people that were preaching heresy would do that as well. And John says in this letter that, listen, we need to stand so firm on the truth that we don't even offer hospitality to those people that are propagating a false message. But John begins in these first four verses of this epistle and he talks to us about the importance of truth. And I want to give you, I don't know how far we'll get tonight, not very far probably, the business I don't want to keep you. But I want us to talk about tonight, why is truth so important? Why do we stand so firm on the truth here? Number one, because the truth connects believers. The truth connects Believers, The Apostle John here begins his, this letter by explaining the role that truth plays in the life of the believer. And he begins this by identifying three groups of believers in this verse. He identifies the elder, the elect lady, and her children. Look at John verse 1, 2 John 1. The elder unto the elect lady and her children. Okay, so John right out of the right out of the gate, issues for us the three persons that are involved in this letter. The elder, the elect lady, and her children. By the time this epistle was written, John was a very, very old man. In fact, he was the last of the surviving apostles. But that is not why he calls himself the elder. It has nothing to do with age. The word elder is a Greek word, presbyteros, and, and it's a word that's used many, many times in the New Testament for an, an, an official of leadership in the church. It does not stress age, but it stresses spiritual oversight for the church. That's the job of the elders. The elders of local churches, they are the spiritual oversight of the church. It would be synonymous with, in this day, not in our day-to-day, but it would be synonymous in John's day of using the term apostle. But nobody was questioning John's apostolic authority. He had already shown himself to be an apostle. He's the last living one. So he just comes and he writes this letter, not needing to give his apostolic credentials, but just simply refers to himself as the elder. I am one, he says, that is speaking to you 
with authority. And right away, the readers of this letter would have known by John saying the elder that he was speaking, his authority came directly from Christ. Many of the people, in fact, who were reading this letter, maybe even this lady that was reading this letter, would have known him as their pastor. The scripture teaches repeatedly that the church is ruled by a plurality of elders. In Acts chapter 14, verse 23, the Bible says, And when they had ordained them elders in every church. And later on in the book of Acts, in chapter 15, there was a dissension concerning in the church concerning circumcision. And in that dissension, Paul and Barnabas took the issue back to the apostles and the elders in Acts chapter 15, verses 1 through 2. And in verse 6 of that same chapter, Acts 15, it informs us that the elders were involved in the resolution of the issue. Paul told Timothy in 1 Timothy chapter 5 and verse 17, let the elders that rule well be counted worthy of double honor. Now notice who John is writing to. He says there, the elder... Unto who? The elect lady. Now the question may arise, given the fact that John is writing, and let me just kind of weed through something here, kind of give you my thoughts on it, because there are some people that believe that the lady to whom John is writing is synonymous with the church, that John is actually writing this letter to a church. Well, I'm kind of a literalist, and I believe that if John was writing to a church, then he would have probably said a church. I mean, that was the practice of Paul unto the church of the Ephesians, the churches of Galatia, the church of Colossae. But who does John write this letter to? The elect lady. Why would he be writing to a husband? As I sat down and studied this text, I said, I thought to myself, well, why would he be writing to the woman's husband? seeing that he had an apostolic message to give, why wouldn't he be writing to the woman's husband? Well, many things could be. It could be that the woman was a uh, widow. But I think it's something uh, greater than that. Even though men are given the divinely given head of the responsibility as the head of the household, 1 Corinthians eleven three 3 and Ephesians five twenty three. We need to remember that the ladies have a great important sphere of responsibility too, don't they? And we find in the New Testament that, that the women have a responsibility in one great area. In Titus chapter 2, starting at verse 3, the Bible says, The, the aged women likewise, that they be behavior as becometh holiness, not false accusers, not given to much wine, teachers of good things. Now get this, that they, and I alluded to this Sunday morning, that they may teach the younger women to be sober, to love their husbands, to love their children, to be discreet, chaste, keepers at home, good, obedient to their own husbands, that the word of God be not blasphemed. And another text would be 1 Timothy chapter 5 and verse 14, where the apostle Paul says, I will therefore that the younger women marry, bear children, God the house, give none occasion to, 
to the adverse adversary to speak reproachfully. And in both of those passages, it informs us that the aged women are to teach the younger women. And one of the things that the aged women are to teach the younger women amongst, any, amongst all those things are to be keepers at home, right? Now, let me tread lightly. Because there's more of you than there are of us, Nathan. We don't need to think for one moment that the sum total of a woman's responsibility in the home is to vacuum, do laundry, and fix your dinner. That is not... <laughs> Nothing could be further from the truth. And while those things are not totally inclusive to just the women, Paul uses this phrase, keepers at home. And that literally means manager of the household. I believe that that includes everything that it takes to make a household run. This is also given as part of the job that makes the wife the virtuous woman of Proverbs 31, right? The virtuous woman in Proverbs 31, one of the things that she's praised for is that her husband trusts her because, he, because she runs the household well. In fact, it even says in that text, in the Hebrew, and we can interpret it by the Hebrew this way, that the, that the woman is so virtuous, that her value is so high, that the man, the husband, even trusts the wife with the checkbook. Because it talks about her going out and buying this, buying a piece of property, buying wool, buying flax, buying this stuff. Because, and, the Bible, and the Bible says there in Proverbs 31 that the husband trusts her. And so as men and you ladies, don't ever need to get the impression that your jobs are just regulated in the home to just manual labor. I know most of you men here pretty well, and I know most of you would probably pick up a vacuum just as well as your wife would. The wife is to, are to be the women, the aged women are to teach the younger women to be managers of a household, to be able to run a house, to be able to run a house. And that would be, you say, well, Pastor, how does this tie into 2 John? That would be why John would be addressing the elect ladies, because this has to do with protecting the truth. And part of protecting the truth is protecting the truth of what goes on in your home. Because it was the ladies' responsibility to show hospitality. And so John is writing to this elect lady saying, you're not to show hospitality to these false teachers. And in that way, women, you're to protect your home. You've got that responsibility to protect your home. You're not to let false teachers into your home. Now, being that John refers to this woman as the elect lady, we already know right away that this woman is a Christian. He, he is referring to this lady that was the eclectos. And that's an adjective used as a direct object to describe this woman as the chosen the elder to the chosen lady. In fact, the word lady there, interestingly enough, 
The word lady there is the feminine form of kurios, which is the Greek word for Lord. In other words, there is a way in which a woman, now don't take this off the cliffs, ladies, there is a way that in which a woman is considered the Lord of the home as far as the management of it is concerned. And it is from the, this Greek word, eklektos, is from, the Greek, is from the Greek prefix ek, which means out of. She is the chosen one out of another group. And this refers, church, to the sovereignty of God in choosing sinners out of a group of sinners and calling them out unto salvation. One of the interesting parts as you read this in John usage here refers to her as the elect lady. Peter does the same thing. Not about a woman, but in, in using this term in general in 1 Peter chapter 1, what, verse 2, Peter says what? What's the first word Peter says? What's the first word Peter uses? And I find it very interesting that many of the writers in the New Testament do not find it necessary, Brother Blue, to describe or explain what they mean by elect. It's not that they mention the word and they say, well, you know, I know that that's a difficult topic, so let me explain you what I mean by that. No, they just refer to the people as the elect. And the reason being is that the early church just accepted what was meant by the term elect. Chosen. They just accepted it. There was no explanation. And John says, the elder to the chosen lady, the elect lady. And then he says again in verse 1, whom I love in the truth. And John reveals the personal connection, folks, of the truth. And John's point here is that believers are connected. Listen to me. Believers are connected in a special love by knowing the truth. It is the truth, church, that binds us together. It is the truth here that embodies the gospel. It is the common belief in the gospel, folks, that unites believers. Because truth must always govern the exercise of love. And the fact is that Christians, the Christians' deep mutual affection flows out of a common commitment to the truth. John says in 1 John chapter 5, verse 1, Whosoever believeth that Jesus is the Christ is born of God, and everyone that loveth him that begot loveth all him also that begot him. Listen, we have no real communion with those who reject the truth of the gospel, do we? It is the truth that connects believers. And the reason why we have no common communion, no real communion with those who reject, reject the truth of the gospel is because they have no spiritual life in them. Notice what Peter says in 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 22, seeing ye have purified your souls in obeying the truth through the Spirit unto unfeigned love of the brethren. See that you love one another with a pure heart. How does Peter say that we love one another with a pure heart? Because we've obeyed the what? The truth. We've obeyed the truth. Because listen, church, salvation requires a belief in the truth. It is critically important for the church to proclaim the right message. A simple but accurately given presentation of the truth can bring about salvation. But a polished lie never will. 
polished lie never will. And then John says in verse 1, not only, and not I only, but also all they that have known the truth. John's linking the love with truth means that the two things are anything but incompatible. Listen, we sometimes Christians, sometimes people that herald the truth are, are called divisive, called unloving. What does Paul say in Ephesians chapter 4, verse 16? Speaking the truth in what, church? You cannot have true love. You cannot have true commitment. We cannot be truly linked together if there's not a belief, number one, in the truth. You've got to stand on the truth. To minimize truth in the name of love is not love at all. It is to abandon Biblical love, which is based on truth. And God's purposes will never be accomplished, folks, if we compromise the truth. Love for souls is never manifest by minimizing truth. And like I said, in our day, the world classifies us as unloving, divisive, and prejudiced. But church, listen to me. The most loving thing to do to somebody is to do what? Tell them the truth. That's the most loving thing to do. Does truth divide? Yes, it does. Truth divides families. Truth divides friends. But the most loving thing to do is to give the truth. And church, we must stand on the truth. And John praises this lady and says, listen, I'm writing to you as the elder, as the chosen lady and her children, because you walk in the truth. And that's what church, that's what binds us together is truth. If we don't have the truth, we have no bond. We have no bond. So the truth connects believers. Number two, the truth conforms believers the truth connects believers the truth conforms believers now john having said that that all this this binding interest is is in the relationship with the believers it's an agreement with the truth of the gospel and what he does he continues in this passionate commitment to the truth in verse two he says what the first four words for the truth's sake john wrote what he wrote for the truth's sake, because he was concerned that this lady to whom he was writing may be tempted to compromise the truth for the sake of hospitality. And even though Christian love, Christian fellowship, and hospitality are vitally important because they manifest the transformation, the transforming power of the gospel, don't they? But they cannot be displayed. At the sacrifice of truth. Because the love that we share in the truth flows out of our commitment to Christ. We'll never be able to truly love the proper way if we swerve away from the commitment of the truth of God's Word. Truth permeates every aspect of our lives, both individually and collectively in the church. And John says of this truth in verse 2, which dwelleth in us and shall be with us, how? Forever. 
And John is setting here the importance of knowing the truth because the truth that he is referring has already been mentioned is the truth of the gospel. There are a lot of things, a lot of things regarding the truth that we did not understand when we got saved, right? I mean, if the day you got saved, if it depended upon you having an understanding of propitiation, you probably wouldn't have got it. And there's a lot of things when you got saved you didn't understand. But there's some truths with the day you got saved that were absolutely vital that you understand or you did not get redemption. We have to know. And, and these, are the, these are the things of the gospel that are, that are truth that we must know. We have to know we are sinners. We have to know we're facing God's judgment. We have to know that only forgiveness is found in Christ and we only have it by divine grace. And it's apart from works. We have to know that salvation is by grace through faith in Jesus Christ, by his atoning sacrifice and resurrection. And if those truths are not understand, are not understood, salvation will never happen. And those have to be truths that we have to protect, folks. Even if it divides, we have to protect those truths. Because those are the truths that connects us and conforms us as believers. And because the truth dwells in us, all believers, our believers are able to discern the truth of the gospel from the false teaching of the gospel. Because John says in 1 John chapter 2, beginning in verse 20, But ye have an unction from the Holy One, and ye know all things. I have not written unto you because ye, ye know not the truth, but because ye know it, and that no lie is of the truth. And then in verse 27, But the anointing which you have received of him abideth in you, and you need not that any man teach you, but as the same anointing teacheth you of all things, and is truth, and is no lie, and even as it hath taught you, you shall abide in him. And John says in that passage in verse 2 of our text that the truth dwelleth in us. It remains in us. It resides in us. And for those people that make a profession of faith in Christ and then fall away from that profession, what have they shown? They've shown that they never really had the truth in them. Because John says that truth, the truth of the gospel, is in you forever. And that's what he says in the last two words of verse 2. Forever. There can never be, folks, a verbal acknowledgement of truth and then a complete disavowal of that truth and never believe that the salvation has been genuine. We live in today, folks, where, 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 we, where a lot of churches, a lot of pulpits are proclaiming the gospel of the carnal Christian. There's no such gospel in the Scriptures. And that's a truth that we need to stand firm on because that's the truth that binds us together. That's the, word, that's the truth that connects us. And that's the truth that conforms us. The truth conforms people forever. John MacArthur said this. He said, I never did I, never did I realize when I was in seminary that I would spend my life rescuing the gospel from evangelicals. And the truth of the gospel is what John is writing to this lady to protect. 
Not only writing to her, but writing to her children to protect the gospel. Because the truth of the gospel, folks, is under relentless assault. Amen, somebody. Y'all a rough crowd on Wednesdays. I don't ever know how my sermons go with you guys until I get my thumbs down on Facebook. Charles Ryrie, for example, wrote a book many years ago called So Great Salvation. If you ever had an opportunity to read it, don't waste your time. But wrote a book called So Great Salvation, in which he states this on page 97 to 99, page 97 to 99. Repentance, he says, and this is how faith, how the truth of the gospel is under assault from evangelicals. Repentance is just a synonym for faith. No turning from sin is required for salvation. He goes on to say in that same book on page 141, but faith might not last. A true Christian can completely cease believing. He goes on on page 119. It is confidence that Christ can remove guilt and give eternal life, not a personal commitment to him. He wrote another book called Balancing the Christian Life, where he said, Practical sanctification and growth in grace require a post-conversion act of obedience. And then going back to So Great a Salvation on page 74, he says, Neither dedication nor willingness to be dedicated to Christ are issues in salvation. And on page 31... Christians may fall into a state of lifelong carnality. And then page 59, a whole category of carnal Christians, born-again people who continuously live like the unsaved, exists in the church. And on page 141, he says, a believer may utterly forsake Christ and come to the point of not believing. God has guaranteed that he will not disown those who thus abandon the faith. The evangelicals. The evangelicals, church. Zane Hodge. Zane Hodge has also wrote a book some years ago called Absolutely Free. He takes it a step farther. You say, how is that possible? Well, he says on page 219, faith is a human act, not a gift from God. And on page 107, Zane Hodges says, it occurs in a decisive moment, but does not necessarily continue. And on page 111, true faith can be subverted, be overthrown, collapse, or even turn to unbelief. Now, can I give you one more? You're probably saying, oh, please do. Most of you know this, gentlemen. Charles Stanley wrote a book called Eternal Security in which he states on page 94, even if a believer for all practical purposes becomes an unbeliever, his salvation is not in jeopardy. And that's Charles Stanley. The gospel, the truth, is under relentless assault. 
And John writes to this lady because he wants her in her home to protect the truth. And God calls us in our homes to protect the truth. But folks, listen, I'll go a step further than that. God calls us in this house to protect the truth. And John's call to this lady, John's call to all believers, is that the truth will remain in us because the truth is what connects us. And the truth is what conforms us. This is going to be a great book. It's going to be a short study because it's a short book, but it's going to be a great book of truth on how you and I need to protect that truth of the gospel because that is what connects us and that is what conforms us. Thank you for listening to the Vine Truth Podcast. We pray that the Word of God has been a spiritual blessing to your soul. For more information about Emmanuel Baptist Church, please visit our website at www.ebcmineral.com. You can also find us on our Facebook page at Emmanuel Baptist Church. Our Lord's Day services are 10 and 11 a.m. as well as 6.30 p.m. We also have a Wednesday service at 6.30 p.m. We here at Emmanuel Baptist Church pray that the message of God's divine truth would always go from the cross, through the church, to the world, until Christ come. God bless you.